things that once were wild alarms cannot now disturb my rest, closed in everlasting arms, pillowed on the loving breast, all to lie forever here, doubt and care and self-resign. Did you hear that? <laughs> so, it was like feedback. Okay, uh, tonight I planned on preaching on the topic of widowhood, and I am going to talk, talk about that in a way, um, but we're, we're going to approach this from two different angles. We're going through a series on the home, marriage, families, and all that, so we're, you have to deal with different phases of life when you're talking about the family, because you're not always going to be a child forever, Right? You're not always going to be a middle-aged adult forever, and you're not always going to be a, uh, a married couple, even. You know, there are things that change in life. There are processes that we go through. There are, there are different phases of life that we go through. And so I want to approach this from two different angles. Later on, I'm going to be talking about the children's responsibility to, the, to their parents, that will be covered in a few few weeks down the road under my teaching for what, are, uh, what does the Bible say to children. But tonight, I want to talk about the topic of widowhood and how as a church we approach widows and, those, and widowers who are in our churches. I don't think many of us know what to say when somebody is going through painful times or they've lost a spouse like that. It's very hard to know what the right thing is to say at that moment. Most everything that we generally say is a platitude of some sort, right? It's just a pat phrase that we memorized. Or, I'll be praying for you, which from a genuine Christian should be an encouragement. But it, all those things that we say, even the I'm praying for you, a lot of times those statements don't help in the moment the way that we want them to. Um, I read an a article by a lady named Gay Clark. She gave an example when her husband died how our words, though unintended, can oftentimes hurt those who are grieving, who have lost a spouse. Uh, she said, a year, a year after my husband died, I sat with friends. Together we had decorated, prayed, 
planned for a ladies' event. One friend glanced at her watch and grabbed her purse and said, I'd better get a move on or I'm going to get, I'm going to get dinner ready. She st started to leave, but turned to me before she reached the door and said, Say, you're really lucky, you know. You don't have to put a meal on the table. And I think she wasn't thinking through those statements like that. But statements like those, we, we glibly, offhandedly make all the time, and they can hurt people who are in positions. And notice, this was a year after the passing of her spouse. It's not like that pain just magically, poof, went away. And I think of uh, Matthew 12, verse 6, which says, But I say unto you, that every idle word that a man shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. So she gives some, some advice for deciding what to say and how to say it to people who are struggling with situations like this. She recommends, first of all, to be slow to speak of another person's circumstances. Sometimes we think we're the expert on every single situation. And we feel like we have, we have the solution to their problem. But that's not necessarily what they need in the moment. So be slow to speak. Think of a Bible verse that says that. Anybody? Slow to speak, swift to hear, slow to write. Okay, anyways, I'm getting it all mixed up, but you get the idea, okay? So be slow to speak of another's circumstances. Secondly, pray often about the words that you say, the effects that they're going to have on people. I struggle with this because my job requires I say a lot of things, and I can be very passionate, you know? And sometimes I say things that I regret later on. Usually, if I remember, and if, if I'm aware of what I said, I go and I try to make it right with the people that I've said it to. That's if I'm aware, okay? So, but we need to be praying often that God will guide our speech, that God will be there to help us know when to say and what to say. Uh, also, she says, keep in mind that you can't fix it. There are not every problem that a person goes through can be fixed. Some of us are just natural where we like to fix problems. We like, like to fix the house when it's broken. We like to fix our wife when she's crying. We like to fix uh, all these different problems. But there are some things that just can't be fixed. You can't resurrect a spouse from the dead, right? You can't fix that. You, you, and that's not, that's not what we are here for. Not every problem can and should be fixed by you. You could be there to comfort them, to be with them. But you can't make the pain go away magically on your own. You can't and you can't bring their spouse back. So the fourth thing she says is keep short accounts. Make it right if you say something that you shouldn't have said. I think a lot of times we skip over this part of our, of, uh, our Christianity. When we do something wrong or when we say something wrong, we don't take the steps to go and to apologize and to make it right like we should. We just walk off and assume that they'll just get over it and maybe they'll forget and we'll be fine. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, one-third of women become widowed are younger than the age of 60. And half of those widowed become so by age 65. It says, in fact, seven out of ten baby boomers can expect to outlive their husbands. And as the people of God, I think we need to be better at ministering to, those, to the people who have this type of a need in their life. Think of James 1, verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled is what? Anybody out there can tell me? What is pure religion? Pastor Carsey's, you can say it louder than the others. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, you skipped one. <laughs> okay, Daniel. 
Okay, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Pure religion, good, godly religion encompasses this aspect. We should be caring for the orphans and for the widows and we should be keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. It's, It's important to God. The purest expression of our faith is giving of ourselves to meet the needs of those who cannot give back in return. And that's, that's why James says this in James 1. Because the orphans, they don't have money and things to give back to you. And in those days, the widows were not usually wealthy. They were not like Lydia that we read about uh, a few weeks ago in, in the book of Acts. Most of them, if they lost a husband, had nothing left. It was all gone. And so they, they were not the type of people who could pay you back and could do things for you. And this message, I think it should resonate with those who have a merciful heart because this is God's heart towards people, towards people who are hurting. Psalm 68, verse 5 says, A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitations. This is describing our God. He is, first of all, a father of the fatherless. Then it says, a judge of the widows. Now, when we read that in English, we think God's standing with a gavel and he's judging the widows saying, guilty, 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 right? That's how it comes across in English. But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is he is a defender of the widows. That is a description of our God. If we'd have continued on 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 Wednesday nights talking about our systematic theology and theology proper, the attributes of God, we were going to eventually come to descriptions of God. And, And this is a description of him. It describes who he is, what is important to him. He is a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. That is our God. In Isaiah 41, verse number 10, it says, fear thou, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. As God looks at the widows, this is what God wants to do. He wants to strengthen them, to give them the strength day by day, to move forward. He wants to help them to assist them, to be there to help them with their needs. And he wants to uphold them, to lift them up. And I think as believers, this is how God, God wants to act towards us, then we should want to do these same things. We should be wa- wanting to be involved in God's ministry to help people who are, who, are, who are widowed. As a church, we are the instruments of God's grace. And if God, it's God's plan to strengthen, to help, and to uphold and sustain them, then we are the instruments to do that. And tonight's message will be, it will be practical guidelines for primarily how to comfort those who are hurting. And I want to look at God's word to develop these principles. Now, a lot of these principles came from my study in the book of Lamentations. In the book of Lamentations, you'll see a little bit later on that there, there is a dialogue in the first two chapters between the narrator and Lady Jerusalem, who has gone through great suffering. And you can, gr- you can glean techniques, ways to comfort people who are hurting from their interactions. And I came up with 10 of them, but I'm not going to preach all, all 10 of them tonight, okay? But the first piece of advice that I would give in comforting those who have lost a spouse is, first of all, to sit in silence with them. To sit in silence with them. If you want to do a study on suffering in the Bible, what books of the Bible would you go to? Job, that's one. Okay, what else? Was it First Peter? Yep, First Peter. And 
Lamentations, right? Those would be some of the three main books that you'd probably go to right there. In fact, uh, Luke, there he's over there. Luke just recently taught through the entire book of Job. No, that's just a subtle jab there. <laughs> okay, taught through the book of Job, uh, talking about God in the book of Job. But Job had three friends, actually he had four friends, but three, th- three friends that were condemned by God. But in, in everything that they did, a lot of what they said and a lot of what they did was wrong, right? But there was one thing that the, those friends didn't do that was wrong. When they first got there, they just sat in silence with their friend. Let's turn to Job chapter 2. Job chapter number 2. <clears throat> Find Psalm and turn backwards if uh, you're struggling to find the book of Job. Job 2. Let's read verses 11 through 13. Job 2, 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamite, For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept. And they rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him. For they saw that his grief was great." Oftentimes when somebody is in the thick of suffering, when they are in this thick of grief, they do not need a lecture on hope and even the future at that moment. That's not what they need. Our words oftentimes become merely an irritant. Okay, how many of you know that salt can cleanse a wound, right? But does it feel good to pour that salt on that wound? No, it doesn't, okay? Eventually you need that, but for somebody who's grieving, they don't need you to just pour more salt on the wound that they are feeling. It's what they, oftentimes that hope, it's what they need to hear, but they need to hear it at the right times. Sometimes they just need somebody to sit with them and to feel with them. This ties into what I said about you don't have to be the one to try to fix their problem. You don't have to be the one to try to make their pain go away. You can just sit there and comfort and empathize with them. In uh, Jeremiah expresses this concept in Lamentations 2, verse 13, when he says, What thing shall I take to witness for thee? What thing shall I liken to thee, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal to thee, that I may comfort thee, O virgin daughter of Zion? For thy breach is great like the sea. Who can heal thee? Jeremiah is ultimately saying, There's nothing I can say. I can't come up with the words to comfort you. Jeremiah is at a loss for words and doesn't have those words to comfort her. And I think ultimately it's a, it's a sign that in those moments, God's the one who needs to be their comfort. And we know that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes teaches that for everything there is a time or a season. A wise friend and a counselor knows when silence and listening are needed. The following quote emphasizes the importance of this principle. This is from the same article I was quoting earlier but she was quoting somebody else, a a book called The View from a Hearse. I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. 
I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and then left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see that, that one go. Sometimes we feel like we've got to say something, but you don't have to say something. Just be there can be enough in that initial moment of grief that they are going through. So the first thing is to know when to sit in silence. Second one, stick with them. Proverbs 18, verse 24. Let's turn there. Not too far away. Proverbs 18, 24. Stick with them. Proverbs 18, 24 says, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Now, it's interesting. Kids, did you get to choose your brothers and sisters? Nope, so you got stuck with them, right? Okay. But your friends, do you get to pick your friends? You don't get to pick your friends, Bella? No, okay. So, yeah, you get to pick your friends. Friend, there's oftentimes, there's the potential for a closer relationship between friends than even sometimes between siblings because you choose that relationship. And I think when you study friendship in the Bible, it, it is an amazing thing. It is a beautiful picture of something that we can have and that we should be striving for. But there is a friend that sticks closer than even a brother does. Oftentimes when people have lost a spouse, they get care and they get comfort in those first initial weeks, don't they? But uh, as time goes on, we drift off. We forget. We get consumed by the rest of our lives. Has their grief, has their struggle disappeared magically just because a couple weeks passed by? There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loveth at all times. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be able to be there with them for the long haul, not for the short term, to be committed to our relationships with them. The, the end of that verse in Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, and a brother is born for adversity. And this is talking of a friend brother, a friend who is so close that he's like a brother to you. And so we go out of our, our way to help people initially at the very beginning, but as time goes on, uh, we, they, we drift off, we forget about them. And honestly, people often grieve anywhere from six months to a few years after the loss of their spouse. And they're still going to have residual grief periodically after that. Are we willing to stick with them for the long haul, for, the, for that whole period of time? Or are we just going to be committed to helping them for a couple days at the very beginning? This phase of their life is not one and done. It isn't just a week of funeral preparations and then boom, it's gone and they move on. Often losing a spouse is like losing a leg. I don't know, but this is what I've been told. And I've, my mom obviously has experienced this. But something that was part of you is now gone. It's not there anymore. And that, that's, that's a continual thing. That's a continual process. It doesn't just go away. Are we committed as brothers and sisters to stick it out with them, to love and to give the whole way through? I think of a child who's born with Down syndrome, right? The parents of that child, they have a long journey in caring for and loving 
that child. They're in it for the long haul. Are we in it with our brothers and sisters in Christ for the long haul? Do we get exasperated that they just don't seem to be getting over it when we want them to? Are we inconvenienced by their need? How committed are we to that relationship? Everyone's grief is different, and every, everyone deals with things differently. And so who are we, honestly, to set time limits on somebody else's grief? That's not my job to judge their grief. That's what you're doing. You are judging their grief. You are determining they must get over it now because I said so. Show me a Bible verse that says they need to be over it right now, this instant, at this moment. And so we set ourselves up as judges of other men's grief. My job is to love them through that grief. That is my job. That is my responsibility, to stick with them through it as a church. So we are to sit in silence, know when to sit in silence. We are to stick with them. But we also need to be forgiving because people who are hurting are oftentimes lash out in pain when they are hurting. I think of a dog who all your life he's been your faithful friend. Roy, do you have a pet dog? Have you ever had a pet dog? No, you lived in Africa. You guys ate dogs. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so, no, but if you had a pet dog your whole life, this thing, you loved it. It's been your bosom companion everywhere you went. But if it breaks its leg and you try to reach in, what's going to happen most likely? He's going to lash out. He's going to snap at you because it's a natural impulse when you're hurting to lash out at everything else that you think is going to hurt you. And so it's inevitable that hurting people will offend you whether by lashing out or just not investing in the relationship. They don't have the emotional energy to put into being your friend right now. So can you just give and invest in your relationship with them? It is in those moments that we need to forgive, we need to forbear, and not retaliate. When people are placed in hot water circumstances, difficult circumstances, it's inevitable that's what's inside is going to come out. I think of Jim Berg's illustration with the tea bag. So when you put a tea bag in hot water, what comes out? Tea does. It mixes with the hot water to make tea. So when things get hard in your life, when you go through difficulties, when you are hurting, the sin that lies there, the pain that is there, uh, that you are feeling, it will find its way out. Hurting people oftentimes hurt other people. And a good friend will know that and will see it for what it is and be able, will be able to forgive. 1 Peter 3, verse 9. Let's turn there. 1 Peter 3, verse 9. 1 Peter is all about living as the people of God in a world that is antagonistic to our faith. And that means we're going to face persecution. But when we are hurt, how should we respond? Gives this general principle here in 1 Peter 3, verse 9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. Matthew 18, verse 35 says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. We need to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ, not respond railing for railing, or evil for evil. When they lash out because they're hurting, we don't respond in kind. We don't treat them the same way. Forgiving flows from forgiveness. Knowing that I am forgiven of so much, I ought to be willing to forgive and to love and to forbear 
my brothers and sisters in Christ. How many times have I lashed out at God when I was hurting? When I say, God, why did you do this? Or God, this frustrates me. This makes me angry. You know, we get angry at God over something that happens. How many times do I grumble and complain about what he is doing in my, in my life? How many times have I neglected my relationship with him? Am I any better than that hurting person who acts in those ways? I've been forgiven so much, so I ought to be willing to forgive them as well. Do we write people off when they don't respond well to our efforts or when they seem to be struggling too much for our taste? We need to forgive. Fourthly, we need to try to bring joy into their lives. Let's turn back to the book of Proverbs. Book of Proverbs. <clears throat> Chapter 17. Proverbs 17 and verse 22. <clears throat> says, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. We already talked about in the first point, there's a time to sit and to be silent, right? But that's not all the time. There is a time to bring joy into their lives, to bring a merry heart. A merry heart doeth good like a what? A medicine. What does a medicine do? It heals. Heals things that are hurt, right? Mommy, I've got a boo-boo, and we put medicine on it, right? And it, and it heals. And so a merry heart can heal the pains, can help them as they process their grief. At some point, the medicine they may need is someone to just get them out of the house and doing something with them. Get them to remember what it was like to laugh and to have fun and to enjoy life. Grief is a process, and at some point they do need to start seeing the light. They can't just bury themselves in it for the rest of their, their existence. But if your method of grief counseling is merely a rehashing of their pain, you are encouraging them to wallow. That's what you are doing. And the Bible actually has a plan for how we deal with grief. But I think that most Christians have not, have not seen that and they've, they've forgotten that. And they, so they run to secular psychologists and counselors to get grief counseling to help them process their feelings. And every time that they go to those, those types of sources, it's just going to be a rehashing of the pain, which just continues it. It perpetuates it over time. And while right now we may be struggling with the feelings of grief, we must be continually pressing forward. To, our, to a renewed hope in the Lord. Habakkuk, let's, tur let's turn there. Habakkuk chapter 3. He sets an example for us. In Habakkuk chapter 3. <clears throat> Habakkuk's tucked there in the minor prophets. Go to Malachi, then flip back. I don't know, maybe 10 pages in my Bible. <laughs> Habakkuk chapter number 3. Verse 16, Habakkuk 3, 16. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, 
and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Now, all of, his, all of the descriptions he's just given, are those good things or bad things? Bad things, right? Okay, those are bad things. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. At the right time, in the right moments, we ought to be seeking to bring joy into their lives and point them to their God who is our joy. Next, talk with them. Proverbs 12, verse number 18. Proverbs 12, verse 18. It says, There is that speaketh like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Circling back to the story of Job, Job's friends were excellent friends until the moment that they opened their mouths, right? Okay, so it's important that our words bring healing. And I want, I want us to see that, uh, that we need to bring words of health to people. And so there's a time to sit in silence, but there is also a time to talk with them. Uh, we wouldn't have the book of Lamentations if there wasn't that dialogue between the grieving person and the counselor in, that, in those passages. But I want to give you some practical advice from Dave Furman. He's a missionary in the Middle East who dealt with, is still continuing to deal with a debilitating pain in his arms that causes him to not even be able to lift up a metal fork because of the pain that he, that he has. And he can't buckle his seatbelt. He can't hold metal silverware. He can't shut his own door. His wife shut his own door. In fact, in one instance, he was standing there and his wife came and opened the door and let him in. And some guy started screaming and yelling at him saying he was a worthless excuse for a man because his wife was opening his door. See how easy it is to judge according to the appearances? But he has a debilitating disease that they can't, they don't know, they can't see, but they make judgments. Here's his advice, okay? Again, first of all, don't try to be the fix-it person. You can't fix every problem that is out there. He says, don't play the comparison game. So when you talk to them, don't try to fix their problems necessarily. Don't try to play the comparison game by saying, oh, it's all right. I've been there too, you know. My grief, my pain, my situation is just as bad as, as yours, and I've, I've had these problems. When you make statements like that, ultimately you are diminishing their pain, and you are turning it to be about yourself. And that may not be your intent, you might be just trying to empathize with them. I understand that. But you turn the conversation to be about you at those moments. Don't make it their identity. Don't act like you're a widow, and that's all that defines you. There's nothing else about you that exists. You're just a widow. That's the only thing we can ever talk about. That's the only thing we can ever think about. Don't, don't define them by their loss. Don't be the person who goes around promising them happiness and deliverance now cross at the funeral and say, it's all right, God's going to bless you and he's going to make you happy right there at that moment. Don't be that person, okay? Don't be that person. Especially, don't be the one who says, God's got a new spouse for you around the corner. How insensitive would that be? Or overly spiritual to where you say, I prayed for you today so that you won't feel any pain and I believe God's going to give it to you today at this moment, okay? That overly spiritual person. In, not in our circles, but in some circles, they'll go around and say, God told me to tell you this. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Okay, so don't be that person, okay? Don't push them to just move on. <clears throat> don't tell them, don't be sad, you should be happy because they are with Jesus. 
Don't be the person who tells them that it's a sin to cry over their loss. Isaiah 53, verse 3. We talked about it this morning. It's a description of the suffering servant, right? Who is that suffering servant? Anybody? Jesus, right? What does Isaiah 53, verse 3 say? He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Our holy Lord is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It is not a sin to feel sadness at the loss of a spouse. So do not ever tell them they are not allowed to cry over that loss. Isaiah 42, verse 3 says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. We see Jesus bringing judgment, and we see him coming in revelation with blood up to his, up to his uh, thighs, riding on his horse because he has trampled down the nations, right? But in Isaiah, we see a different image of Jesus. He doesn't bruise even a, uh, or a bruised reed he doesn't break, meaning this, this, re- this reed that is hurt, that is wounded, he is not snapping it in half. He is gentle. He is kind with them. Don't avoid them. I know sometimes it's uncomfortable and we don't know what to say, but playing the avoidance game is not the answer. Don't give out general promises of help. Say, I'll help, I'd, I'd love to help you sometime, but then you never follow through. Try to be more specific and actually follow through, but then again, and also don't condemn them. Jesus was acquainted with grief, and he understands us. And I think that's one of the main lessons of the book of Lamentations. So talk with them and keep these things in mind. Pray with them. If you want to get more of a comprehensive look at how to deal with grieving people, study the book of Lamentations. I already mentioned in the first three chapters, actually, you have a dialogue going on between Lady Jerusalem and the narrator. And you can glean... Methods for counseling and comforting from those interactions. In uh, Lamentation 1 and 2, uh, the, the narrator challenges her to cry out to God. Lamentation 2 verse 19 says, Arise, cry out in the night, in the beginning of the watches, pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thy hands toward him for thy life of thy, ch- of thy young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. Chapters 1 and 4, he's encouraging her to to, um, pray to God. But then in chapter 3, he identifies with her. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. In verse 15, he hath filled me with bitterness, and he hath made me drunken with wormwood. In verse 18, and I said, my strength and my hope has perished from the Lord. But then in, in 3, 21 through 24, he brings, he, he processes this grief and he comes to hope in the Lord when he says this. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. But in answer to the challenge, Jeremiah leads the people in the next two chapters in a corporate lament. Do you understand what I mean when I say corporate? Corporate means as a group. When we have corporate prayer at the church, that is the whole church together 
praying together. And so Jeremiah leads the gathered group of Jews left over in a corporate lament for what has happened. In Lamentations 5 verse 1, he says, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Notice the pronoun change from me to us. Consider and behold our reproach. In Lamentations 5 verse 3, he says, We are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. And Lamentations 5 verse 3, Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. So he encourages them. In fact, he commands them to pray. Pour out your heart to the Lord. He pours out his heart to the Lord as an example. But in the end, he joins with them and he prays with them. Helping those who are hurting can be a painful experience. It requires something of us, right? It costs us something to do this. And it wears us out very quickly. But the secret to finding strength in these moments is we need to abide in the vine. We need to have a consistent love relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ and derive our strength from him. When it's all about us and us doing what we need to do, yeah, we're going to wear out. We're going to burn out. It's going to be hard to comfort those who are grieving because they're not giving anything back. We're just pouring out into them. But we must abide in Christ if we are going to be able to comfort people who need us in those moments. And John 15 verse 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. If we are not abiding in Christ, our ministry will be empty. It'll be useless. Just a mere burning of energy. Let's go ahead and have a heads bowed, eyes closed this evening. This, isn't, this message isn't quite the same. I don't, we don't have any widows who have just been widowed recently, but we do have widows that we know, and we have widows that we know that are, that are still in this state of life that, we, that are in our church. And so I'm not going to ask you to come forward in the invitation today. But I do want to ask you, are you avoiding people who are suffering, who are hurting? Are you impatient for them to get over these things. And so as the piano plays, just evaluate your heart, evaluate your life, and ask the Lord to give you the courage, to give you the strength to be able to meet the needs of people who are struggling with widowhood tonight.
Amen. Go ahead and look up. Messages like tonight's aren't intended to be, okay, we need to get right. We need to, we need to uh, fix something per se, but they're more preparatory. There will be times we will face scenarios like this. And I think a lot of us do the wrong things because we just don't know what the right things are. So we need to know what the Bible says about how to comfort and how to be there for people like that. Brother Ridley, do you mind closing us in prayer tonight?